And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we got a dope brother on the show who's going to um, teach us some stuff. And I actually have been looking forward to this conversation. Great writer and all the other things that we are going to uh, dig into his brain about, but none other than Marcus Collins from the D, yes, from sir. the city, as we talked about. How you feeling, man? I'm doing really well, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. That's what's up. He's not from Southfield, West Bloomfield. He's from Detroit, you know. Uh, shout out though so uh, my show is unique because we um ask our guests the same first question mm -hmm. um which is uh about the arc of your career so talk to us about how you ended up where you are today from your beginning and your career stops because people like to just assume that you end up sitting in this seat and they never really know the hard work you put into getting to where you are well, it was a long and windy road to get here, truly. Uh, a product of Detroit, I did well in math and science. So as one should, if you're black, you do well in math and science, you go into engineering. So that's what I did. I studied engineering at the University of Michigan, realized I didn't want to be an engineer. Thought it was interesting, but not something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, so I took some music theory courses to offset my terrible GPA. Came home and said, Mom and Dad, I think I want to be a songwriter. And my parents said, you must be smoking crack. Because ain't no way that's going to happen. Uh, so I finished my engineering degree. Went to the music business after graduation, uh, trying to be a cross between Babyface and Pharrell, neither of, the, neither of which worked. Uh, so I ended up going back to school to get my MBA, went out west to work at Apple, doing partner marketing at iTunes, moved to New York and met a guy named Matthew Knowles, who has a daughter named Beyonce. And he goes, Sounds familiar. Sounds, sounds, goes, but you mean uh, Tina. You mean Tina daughter. You don't mean Matthew daughter. Which yeah, is right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And Matthew goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You were an engineer. You started a music company. You have an MBA, you worked at Apple, and you're black, fam, you don't exist. You, you're not real. You're a unicorn. I go, no, I'm, I'm real. I'm real. He says, well, you should run digital strategy for a Beyonce. And I said, yep, I should totally do that. So I ran digital strategy for a Beyonce in the I Am Sasha Fierce days, which is like an amazing time to be in the Beyonce business, as if there's ever a bad time. But this was a particularly great time because we got to see Beyonce evolve from being Beyonce to Queen B. Right, and they had a front row tickets to 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 watching that transformation happen. Even lay a brick on that that edifice, if you will. Um, but after music, I went into advertising because I thought that advertisers were doing a better job of breaking music artists than record labels were. And while I was at this agency called Big Fuel Pure Play Social Media Agency, I met a gentleman by the name of Steve Stout. And Stout was once a music executive who started an agency with Jay-Z and Jimmy Iovine called Translation. And now it's like he's back in music while also in advertising. And he says, yo, you should come run uh, my social media practice, like built it, develop it, and lateralize it across all of our clients. And I was like, oh man, I'm totally doing that. Um, and while I was there, I got to launch the Made in America Music Festival for Budweiser, uh, move the New Jersey Nets from New Jersey to Brooklyn to become the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, launched the Cliff Paul campaign and it just really cut my my teeth, truly. It was around this time that I found myself invested in the social sciences, which I realized is the biggest cheat code ever. Like if you understand the underlying physics of humanity and your job is to get people to move, which marketers, that's our job, to get people to adopt behavior, there is no cheat code more powerful than that. And the deeper and more committed I became to the social sciences, the better my work got. Right, like they, they were just so they're so incestuous that way that I decided to pursue a career in academia while also practicing. So I sit in two worlds: one foot in the world of academia, where I rigorously interrogate the phenomenal social world around us, 
Um, and then one foot in the world of practice where I get to put ideas in the world. Most recently, as the chief strategy officer at Wine Candy New York, the agency responsible for you know Nike's just do it and a ton of other awesome things. <laughs> Tell me this. Let's let's I want to back up just to one thing that you said. Um, I don't think that um Matthew Knowles gets the credit that he deserves for being the visionary that he is. I mean, mm-hmm. talk about the relationship, the vision, what type of, because I've always admired him from afar. Don't know him that well, bumped into him in the airport. Shout out to Mr. Knowles. But talk about the visionary and kind of just the, I guess, the lack of respect he gets from some of our peers and understanding his role in growing who we know to be an icon of our generation. I mean, visionary is probably the best way to describe Matthew because he saw the vision before anyone else did. He probably saw the vision before Beyonce did. I mean, the guy was making six figures at uh, at Xerox. I mean, he was a he was a very accomplished uh, 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 executive. Um, Tina was an entrepreneur on the, the 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 beauty salon side, but he quit his job to invest in his daughter because he saw something in her, and he treated it like it was a job, you know. And as a result, the work ethic that you see. Uh, manifested in who Beyonce is today, um, it was kindled there. Like it started w- w- with him. Not only that, but like building Music World, the record label management company that I worked for that that managed and and um and housed Beyonce, Destiny's Child, Solange, and all these other things. I mean, he he built, I mean, he he built the vehicle by which he was able to not only steward the career of his clients, but really do it on his own terms. I mean, Matthew had an office at Sony Music. Like he had an office that was his own office in Sony Music because the guy's impact was just unbelievable. I mean, I've learned so much from 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 Matthew because he gives freely. He actually says, you know, you got to give till it hurts. Um, but but he's also a tough guy too. Yeah. No, nah, he's dope, man. A shout out to Matthew Knows. Let's talk about this. How did you get into the work of being a cultural translator? And what does that mean in layman's terms? Yeah, I, I found myself in advertising using vernacular that I truly didn't understand. I didn't realize that at the time. Um, but I would say things when you get our idea out in the culture, we need to be our ideas need to be informed by culture. What's going on in culture? Culture, 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 culture. And what I realized is that if you ask five people to define culture, you get 25 different answers. Now that's a problem. If we can't fully, concretely articulate what a thing is, how do we ever leverage it? How do we ever harness it? And that's important because there is no external force more influential to human behavior than culture. And when I realized that I was just as bad as everyone else, just sort of using the language without any Rosetta Stone to describe it or understanding of the mechanisms that make it go. Um, So what my career turned into was first helping people have the lexicon, the vernacular to, to, to talk about what culture is and the ability to harness it. But then as a researcher and practitioner to translate the culture, the cultural characteristics of one group of people for brands so or brand understands its beliefs, its ideologies, its artifacts, behaviors, and language. These are the, 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 the components, the elements that comprises of, of one's culture, but then also translate the brand's culture, its beliefs, its artifacts, behaviors, language, and the like for the group of people that we're trying to target. And the idea is that when there's congruence between the cultural characteristics of a group of people that we'll call a community, a subculture, and the cultural characteristics of a brand, organization, entity, person, 
when those two things are congruent, you find you, you find ideological connection. And those people consume from the brand not because of what they do, but why they do it as a as a as an identity project for themselves, a way to communicate to the world who they are. And that's unbelievably powerful. So my job by and large is to translate one for the other to realize that there's more in common that they know. And when those two things are are revealed in this revelatory way, we now enable us as marketers to communicate, to preach the gospel in such a way that activates people to adopt behavior. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. How diverse is the space? Because I know the answer to the question. So let me just follow it up with, you would assume that you'd see more of us in these spaces because brands like McDonald's, Coke, et cetera, um, have always seemed to understand us better than other brands. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, if, if we talk about diversity, I'd say at, its, at the core, culture is diverse because there are many, 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 many cultures that make up society. Right, rather you're not, even, you're not even in the subcultures, but yes, exactly. Right, so whether you're a sneakerhead, you're a fantasy uh, football person, you're into cards, you're into BTS, you're a Swifty. Like I mean, like it, it, it gets so so small in uh, uh in, in 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 its in its in its volume, i.e., a subculture, and it gets as big as you know uh, an athlete. And Nike talks to athletes in ways that only Nike could. So it's diverse in that way. But then we think about um, the ethnic diversity that is represented in these organizations in an effort to talk to these cultures mm-hmm. in meaningful ways, you know, you see us in those rooms informing the work, but we're not oftentimes leading the work, i.e. it's our cultural capital that's being leveraged. One may even argue be exploited so that the marketing communications hugs all the nuances and subtleness uh, that makes uh, the, the 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 cultural characteristics feel like you're one of us, but in many of these companies, particularly on the agency side, you don't see a lot of people of color, especially black people, running agencies. You don't see them in C level. I mean, I was a chief strategy officer. There wasn't a whole lot of me in our network for sure. Um, actually, I was the only only one on the on the strategy side. Like, and I think that's the problem with our industry as advertising in particular is that we leverage the social capital and the cultural capital of a group of people so that we might have proximity to these subcultures, realizing how powerful the subcultures are. But these people, the these translators, these cultural translators, don't get rewarded with the economic gain that typically mm. uh, befalls 
uh, the companies that are that are doing the marketing work. Could you translate this to another sector, say politics? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, Have you ever thought about that? I mean, oh, I would absolutely. hire you today as, as like my <laughs> calm, yeah, I, special, special advisor over all things right. That sounds, I mean, because as, as someone who deals in politics, trying to sell a product, which is an idea, a faith, a vision, a person, it seems like these would correlate or translate, wouldn't they? 1,000%. I mean, the book that I wrote for the culture argues that very thing that, you know, this isn't for marketers. This is for politicians, leaders, managers, activists, clergy, regular Joe Schmoes. Like we're yeah. all trying to get people to adopt behavior. And I would argue in politics, good night. You know, the, the GLP might be one of the strongest brands ever, ever, because the people who subscribe their identity to them, they adhered to the cultural characteristics of what is normal. They fall in line. And as a brand, they tell stories better than anyone else. So while, you know, unfortunately, the Democratic Party has logic and reasoning uh, on their side, logic and reasoning is very nuanced and it's hard to, to communicate nuance and caveats. Where on the other side, Republican side, they tell great stories that are evocative. And the part of the brain that is associated with behavior, it's the same part of the brain that's associated with emotion. So when you get when you get it going, as uh, Chaz Michael Michael puts it, right, it's provocative. It gets the people going, and when you get people going, they start to become kinetic and 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 they become contagious. More people take take action. So the ideas that we're talking about here, they aren't uh, they aren't regulated only to 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 brands and branded products in in this micro this, this monolithic or in this um, myopic view. Instead, the aperture is much wider. And whether you are in, in marketing, in leadership, in organizational uh, uh, practices, or in politics, and the, the, these principles are core because they're at the core of humanity. In TV, that's what we call a segue. That's why I threw that question out there, because now we're going to talk about for the culture. But why, you know, I got to start with why did you write it? Yeah. Well, I wrote it for the same reason that I realized that I was uh, woefully unprepared to navigate these waters in any meaningful way. I, we don't have good language. We suck at this language. We often use culture as a proxy for popularity. You know, what's happening mm -hmm. in culture, which essentially is saying what's popular, but those two things aren't analogous, not at all. There's certain cultures that aren't popular at all. Like we call those fringe um, and they're purposefully not, not, not uh, popular. So we have really poor vernacular and therefore we're not great at harnessing the power of culture. So I wrote that book from a pragmatic perspective, but while I was writing the book, I also realized there's a personal, uh, uh, a personal undertone that I wasn't aware of that revealed itself once I got to the end of the book is that even me, the person who studies culture realizes or did not realize just how influential culture was. I mean, like I, I started that I'm from Detroit, studied uh, engineering because if you were in the 90s and you were black, you did math and science, and engineer is what you're supposed to be. And that I means that's what culture is. Culture is the system of conventions and expectations for people like me. I studied culture because that's what was expected. We studied engineering because that's what was expected of me. I didn't want to do engineering once I got in there. I, I thought it was interesting, but I didn't want to do it. But my parents were like, nah, you're doing this. Why? Because they are also being influenced mm -hmm. by the cultural expectations of what it means to be a good parent. 
to rear your children in the ways that you think you're going to have a much more predictably positive outcome, even if they are unhappy, even if they are, in some cases, miserable. Um, and what I didn't realize is that we were, we, all of us in our day-to-day -day lives are being influenced by culture in every turn. I mean, what we wear, how we style ourselves, what car we drive, where we go to school, if we go to school, what we study, who we marry, if we marry, how we vacation, what we eat, how we bury the dead, if you bury the dead. I mean, every single facet of social living is influenced by culture. And if you don't understand that and you can't identify what's happening to you, then you don't have very much agency to navigate it. I think that that is that's scary, man. So from a personal who's, who's perspective, the who's the audience for the book? Yeah. Oh, it's it's the 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 core audience, I would say, the target are people with a vested interest in getting people to move, whether you're a marketer, politician, activist, uh, a clergy, entrepreneur, or leader. There's tertiary oh. uh, uh, or secondary and tertiary audiences, of course. There's you know cultural producers, right? As we start this conversation, there are people who look like us who create cultural product that is exploited, uh, uh, leveraged, and they don't get a chance to realize the, the economic value of that, oftentimes because they don't know how to communicate the value that they bring. They don't know how to say, hey, don't work with that person, work with this person. Well, why? Because that person's cooler. That doesn't really work in a boardroom. But if you right. say, oh, because the cultural, the cultural gravitas of this, peep, of this person and the artifacts, behaviors, and language that person subscribes to, those things are highly influential to this groups of people. That creates a, a much better language that people can understand and ultimately operationalize. So let me ask you just a couple more large questions here before we get you out of here. What's your creative process like? Like I'm specifically thinking about the Cliff Paul campaign that you did for State Farm, Budweiser's Made in America Festival. How do you come up with all that new, what's now iconic, culturally resonant branding opportunities? I start with the truth. It's not creative at all. And I mean, the way I get to the truth may be creative in nature, the research that we do, but at the core, I just start to what's true about these people, realizing that truth is not objective, it's subjective, right? Your truth is different than my truth based upon our cultural lenses. You know, I think of it this way, for some, a cow is leather. For others, it's a deity. And for some, it's dinner. But which one is it? It's all three, depending on who you are, right? So when we talk about what is true, you have to understand how those people make meanings because of their cultural, their cultural meaning frames, how they see the world. So we get to the truth, which but is I'm very- I'm still focusing on people understanding that a cow is an animal. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's, I'm like, like, I understand what it means, to be, but I'm in a world of fact where people want to tell me that a cow has two legs and is an amphibian. And I'm like, no, that's- <laughs> That's not what a cow is. I mean, but think of it this way. You go back to politics. You know, we look at January 6th and say that was a bloody and brutal insurrection where some was like, no, those are just those. Those are tourists. They just look at the Capitol and you go, how, Sway? How in the world can you see something? completely You don't, different you don't have all the facts, Sway. Yes. Yeah, but, the, but the thing is that, like, there are facts that are statistical uh, occurrences. Objective objective statistical occurrences, but we look at these occurrences and we translate them, right? There, there it's, it's in, in the, in the literature is referred to naive realism where we can look at the exact same thing, but see something totally different, right? If, if you think of, if you think of the social world we live in as a basketball game, if you have nosebleed seats and I have courtside seats, we see two different games, mm -hmm. even though we're watching the exact same thing. 
right? And the only way to really understand, get a full picture of the game that is the social world we we inhabit is to sit in more seats. So as researchers, we're trying to see the world through the eyes of many, especially the people that we're going after. And that's a very scientific, uh, it's creative in how we do the methodology, but it's much more scientific. Once we get to the truth, the question is, okay, well, how does the brand see the world? Like what's their perspective on the world? Now, how can we take the truth and like Emily Dickinson put, says it, tell it slant, tell in the way people go, oh, that's interesting. I mean, comedians do this better than, than anyone. They just observe behavior and go, that's wild. You see, she did that. He did that. Okay. It, this is a thing. And they apply theory to what they just observed. And then they tell all the truth until it's slant. And they get on stage. You ever notice everyone goes to the mall, they do this. Oh, we all laugh. Oh, that's so me. Of course it is because they've gotten to the truth. So the creative process in a lot of ways, it starts with the truth. And then creatively, we say, what's the most compelling way to tell it slant? Last question for you, for young folks listening to this podcast, seeking to build their own brand, what's your advice to them? I mean, the free advice, don't, don't charge them your don't charge them your experience rates. Well, I mean, I already wrote a book, so I kind of laid it out there <laughs> <laughs> to scale the thinking. But, you know, at the core of it, I think it, I, I'd say it's, it's, uh, it's threefold. The first is like, what do you believe? I mean, brands by definition, they are signifiers that conjure up thoughts and feelings in the minds or hearts of people relative to a company, a product, institution, organization, or person, right? They're, they're vessels of meaning. And that meaning is anchored in belief. Like, what do you want people to think of when they see you? Do you want people to think of a sharp razor when they see you? Or do you want you to think of something that's far greater? So what do you believe? First, secondly, how do you, well, who believes what you believe? Like who are the people who see the world the way you do, right? Who your, your congregations, how I describe them in the book. Then once you find your congregation, people will see the world the way you do, because those people are most likely to move, not because of what you are, but because of who they are. They, they consume as a cultural act. Then we go preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. We go communicate how we see the world. And then people go, yo, you see that, man? We've been talking about the exact same thing just the other day. Finally, someone says it, and then they consume as a, as, a, a, as a receipt of their identity, and then they go tell other people like yourself. I mean, the most powerful brands transcend the category which they operate, and they, 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 they live at an ideological level. I mean, Nike sells sneakers. Sneakers are a commodity, right? There's, no, there's been no massive innovations of sneakers to make you run faster, jump higher, or the like. Right, it's all adornment. It's all completely subjective and aesthetic driven, right? But Nike is more than a sneaker company. Nike exists because they believe that every human body is an athlete. They transcend the category and operate at an ideological level, and that's the gospel that they preach. You hardly ever hear Nike talk about where they source their leather or how comfortable the Air Max is. Never. It's about people realizing their best athletic self because that's what the brand believes. So for people who are starting their brand, whether you're young or old, start there. What do you believe? How do you see the world? Mm. Who sees it like you? Now go preach the gospel. My brother, Marcus Collins, thank you for joining the show. Tell people when the book is out, how they can get it, where they can get it from, et cetera. The book is out right now and where all uh, books are sold from the Amazons of the world to the Barnes and Nobles to your, your, your mom and pops. Uh, you can find me at marktothec.com, M-A-R-C-T-O-T-H-E-C.com, and all the socials uh, at Mark to the C. Marion, I appreciate you, brother. Keep grinding away at it. Super grateful, man. Thank you. You got it. Let's go.